I'm Carrie. I'm Rachel. And today we're talking about Stargate SG-1 Season 2, Episode 7, Message in a Bottle. Not not, not the song by the police, the Stargate episode, just so. Get that out of the way. Well, yeah, but not can, the song by the police. I can think of them the same, though. But now, yes, that song will be stuck in your head, and I'm sorry? Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, question mark? Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, question mark? Sorry, not sorry. Yes. This is definitely an episode where we are learning that the SGC is not paying attention to our memos. No, they're not. They are not. No. Ugh, no. man. No. So, nope. yes. So, this episode originally aired on August 7th, 1998. The story is by Michael Greenberg and Jared Paul with a teleplay by Brad Wright, and it was directed by David Worry Smith. And in this episode, SG-1 discovers an ancient artifact that takes the SGC hostage, infecting Colonel O'Neill with the remnants of a long-dead alien species. I think I'll, every time you say those little recaps, they all need a little something at the end. Of the- <gasps> oh, my God. Dun, dun. Some sort of, we need, yeah. <laughs> we'll start doing a sound effect or every single time I'll just end up going, <gasps> okay. What? <laughs> so... The opening of this episode is really interesting because it's like a faraway shot of SG-1 in spacesuits on, like, the moon. So this is the first sort of non-atmospheric planet that they've been on, which is interesting. And every time it this is. starts, I'm like, why are they there? And they're like, oh, because they got it, like, a like, EM signal or something. But it's just like, there's no atmosphere. Why are you there? But then, you know, eventually it makes sense why they are. Um, and... So there is some sort of large structure. So at one point, this planet was inhabited, and Tilk says this planet is now Talmak, which is apparently a, a, a ghoul term, meaning that it is uninhabitable at this point. So yay for ghoul vocabulary. If you're trying Woo. to learn ghoul, there's another word for you. Uh, however, there is something emitting an EM frequency, so that's why they're there. And hey, it's probably that weird metal orb sitting over there on like some sort of weird altar thing and it's got very small writing all over it and sam is super impressed because if this planet did support life it hasn't for actually like a very very long time now like she goes back for like the neanderthals and then jack goes ah that takes me back and i'm like (laughs) me broke a divide apparently i like Mm -hmm. the little recalls like that are always fun Mm -hmm. um so apparently it's been probably a thousand, maybe several thousand years, and this thing is still has power, which that's really cool because I know this could be like a super awesome power source for us, if nothing else, if they can't, you know, figure out what it does or what it is, maybe they could figure out the sort of power source thing. And Jack basically just wants to know how dangerous it is, and she goes all like techno babble on him with all of this stuff. It's got an electromagnetic field and alpha, gamma, and delta radiation. Okay, cool, but like, what is it and why is it doing that? And then Daniel's like, it's a time capsule. I mean, maybe, could be. So I'm like, okay, where did you pull that? I mean, maybe, sure, why not? Um, you know, maybe I mean, something fair, to sort of- It's a fair assumption if you go to a planet that's absolutely barren, except for this like altar with this thing on it. Yeah, yeah. I not that much of a leap. No, it's maybe not the first thing I would think of, but after he says it, it's like, oh, that does, that would kind of make sense, especially when he goes on to explain that if they knew their civilization was ending, it might be a way to sort of pass on their story. So if anybody came after them, they would know who these people were and maybe 
how their civilization ended, like what happened to maybe help other people avoid the same fate. And Tilk also mentions that when a ghoul is conquered, that ghoul will often leave, leave behind something to destroy the ghoul who conquered them. And then Sam goes, you think it might be a booby trap? And Tilk just goes, booby? And I really want to know how many takes it took them to get through that without <laughs> Christopher Judge just losing his shit and laughing for like 10 minutes because it had that there's no way that was done in one take. There's absolutely no. no way. Somebody lost it on every take. And I want to know how long it took to just shoot those two sentences. There's none of that in the gag reel. There are no, there's no gag reel for season two. Oh man. Maybe that's the reason for it is because the entire gag reel is just this scene <laughs> over. <laughs> just, it's just because of her just going, Booby, and my brain just cracking up. <laughs> so, so, but basically, you know, Jack wants to know the threat, and they kind of all come to the decision that whatever advantage this device may have with, you know, the power source that could last for thousands of years outweighs any possible risk. So they just like toss it into the fret and take it home. <gasps> Like they don't even put it in like a box. It's just like knocking around inside this thing on the Fred, which a the the in the long shot the Fred wasn't there with them, and then suddenly it's like right next to them. A mm-hmm. but then also come on, secure the damn thing. You know something's emitting an EM field. It's got a power source. There's probably some kind of radiation coming from it. Take some kind of containment unit with you, work. not just. Or- how about don't take anything back to the planet that you don't know what it is or does, or you can only look at it and say, ooh, it's pretty. Like, no, bring bring further equipment with you. Go back. Yeah. Ah, that's- they, really, they really need to get that, like, uh, like, like secondary base, like off-world base set up that can be the sort of intermediary between the alien planet and Earth where there's, like, you know, five people. So if shit does go wrong... Only like five people are affected by it instead of like the whole planet, possibly. Because yeah. like this this would be like the perfect case for that kind of thing where we don't know what it does. It's doing something. We need to study it. They probably it would probably be kind of prohibitive to study it there since there's no atmosphere, so they're in the bulky suits and stuff. You could see why they would want to take it back, because trying to operate whatever delicate equipment they might need to study it would not be easy with the big spacesuits on, but also, Although, I, I mean, I think that planet is actually a prime planet to build the second base because if something goes wrong, there's no atmosphere, there's no oxygen, there's no nothing for it oh. to like spread anywhere. So they could yeah. totally just build a biodome there to be the secondary location. That is a very good idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Find, find a planet like this. Yeah. Because then if it gets out, it can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. It can't spread anywhere to do anything. That is an excellent idea. And the We should write to protocols. the SGC. <laughs> <laughs> Dear SGC, if you want to build a secondary base. Uh, anyway. Put it on the moon-like planet. So, yeah. So they just, like, toss it in the frat and start walking back to the gate when it starts to glow. What? We cut to the opening credits. So, yeah, something's going on with this thing. And um, so when we come back from the credits, SG-1 have returned to Earth. And we have Sam and Daniel 
giving some of the waiting personnel like instructions for what should be done to like secure it and some of the stuff they're going to need to start analyzing it. But there is a goof because the four of them come. So we see in order the Kawoosh, the four of them step out and the gate shuts down and there's no Fred. And then they walk forward a bit and then suddenly the Fred is there. <laughs> Again. Continuity Continuity. Please, please make sure everything is through the gate before it shuts down. Just another, you know, little annoying thing that you kind of catch every now and then. And it's like, just, yeah. Anyway. Continuity It's good. Somebody's job has to be. Yes. Kind of, I was watching another TV show recently, and this will be a short side story, that um, it, the, the scene took place in a diner. And so it was one person behind the counter and talking to some person sitting at the counter. And the continuity error was just terrible because the person sitting behind the counter was busy uh, drying mugs. And so like in one take, She'll have, she's, she's drying one mug and there are three mugs in front of her. In another take, she's drying the mug, there's two mugs in front of her. Then there's back to three, then there's one. And it's like, oh, come on. Just drive the same mug over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, why, um, why would you even move the other ones? I don't understand. So we then cut to the lab where Sam and Daniel are starting to work on the artifact with this guy Simmons up in the control booth. And he was also in the gate room with Hammond, which is just like, okay, new guy on base. I wonder what he's doing here. And you know who I can't unsee him as? So the old Melissa Joan Hart version of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, right? Before uh-huh. it was a TV show, it was a made-for-TV movie, and then they decided to make oh. the TV show. He played Harvey in the made-for-TV show, made-for-TV movie, and he I... was adorable, just absolutely adorable. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So now every time I saw him, like that, he was Harvey. He was the original okay. Harvey. Okay, good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the first things that Sam says is that apparently there's two new elements to add to the periodic table of elements, just based on the preliminary scans of this thing. And so making it, we don't know. <laughs> so here's my question: If you discovered a new element, what would you name it? Ooh. Oh man, that is on the spot. Uh... Is that is that too hard? Should I let you come I back would... to it later? Yeah, because I would probably just name it some sort of Harry Potter spell. Okay. <laughs> Expelliarm, Expelliarmus site. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and then the, the other weird thing in the scene is apparently that Simmons guy has a crush on Sam, which is just <gasps> so awkward and unnecessary. And I mean, we'll get to it later, but... I thought it was a cute moment because they don't really put stuff like that in the show very often. So I thought it was funny to just have a little quip like that in there. Yeah. It was, I mean, yeah. Maybe if we had seen him before and this wasn't like his first episode, maybe, yeah. you know, but I mean, I understand there's probably people on bases on the base who have a crush on Sam. Cause she's like super awesome. And that part I'm fine, but it's just like, we have never seen this person before. So this thing really doesn't mean anything to us. You know, as the viewer. So, yeah. Um, But, yeah. I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's believable, but kind of weird. But, eh. It's Mm -hmm. all right, I guess. 
So then in the briefing room, they're giving Hammond a rundown of what they know so far. Uh, Daniel says that apparently the writing on the exterior of the artifact seems to be instructions on how to quote unquote open it, but they still don't really know anything about the interior. And Dr. Frazier is going to be supervising the positron emission topography. So here's a, a I think Sam meant to say positron emission tomography because positron emission topography is not a thing. But the positron emission tomography is also known as a PET scan. You've heard of a PET scan. Do you know anything about PET scans? I don't, but tell me more about the topography part. <laughs> well, it's tomography. I know, but now I'm thinking like, of what that would even be for topography, because I didn't catch that before, and that yeah. seems really enjoyable. I want, yeah. well, topography <laughs> I want to know more about is that. Like, Topography is like the mapping of a surface of a thing. I know. Which they know what the outside is. I And so I, I really think she meant tomography because they're trying to figure out like what's inside the thing because they can't open it yet. So they need to know what's inside it to know if it's even safe to open, I would guess. Um, so the positron emission tomography is a procedure that's used to measure the metabolic activity in specific organs or body tissue. It's, it's that scan where you have to like get in, injected with the radioactive dye before they do it, if you've ever seen that done oh. on like TV shows, because the dye sort of helps assist in analyzing what's going on with that organ, like the functionality and the structure of it, because that's sort of what the PET scan picks up. Right. And so the other cool thing is like due to how PET scans work, it can actually detect certain illnesses before other imaging types like CT scans or MRIs. And so it's most often used by like oncologists or neurologists and neurosurgeons and cardiologists to sort of get into those organs that you can't really just cut open and take a look at kind of a thing. And that really need the very sort of high resolution imaging that you get from that type of a scan. So given all of that, that it's used to measure the metabolism of a thing. I don't really know how that would work on a metallic alien artifact. Okay, but it sounds good. I mean, it sounds cool, but sounds good on TV. I, 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 yeah, I don't really think it, it would work <laughs> for what they want it to do. So I don't know, but so that's maybe good. She that's, really that's did what mean, does. Maybe she really did mean topography and mm -hmm. they are examining the surface of the object. Maybe much more closely. Maybe. <laughs> so we then learn from Hammond, though, that, of course, the NID would like to study the device. But since we still don't know, like, what it even is or what it does, it's probably not a good idea for them to do that yet. And Tilk's like, we should probably keep it really close to the Stargate just in case, which, yes, good Tilk, very good idea. So... Hammond, you know, kind of agrees, and so he's willing to delay SG-1's next mission to P4G-881, a very prim primitive world with no intelligent life, so there's no need for an archaeologist, which means Daniel can stay behind, right, anyway, for 24 hours, so they can at least confirm, like, the stuff that Daniel and Sam have figured out so far and see if they can get any further with their study. Yay! Yes. So... Back in the lab, Sam, Daniel, and Simmons, they're still working on the artifact when Daniel suggests 
that some of the writing is actually numbers and that whatever it's explaining seems to grow exponentially. Jack then enters and apparently their 24 hours are up because they're set to ship out in a few hours. And Daniel tries to get Jack to get Hammond to delay more, but Jack's like, nope, if she wins a field unit, that means we go out. When we get back, you can come say hi, but we got to gear up. We got to go because this is our job. When suddenly there is an EM spike from the device and there's also an increase in the core temperature and an increase in the emission of the alpha particle radiation. So Sam's like, we got to get this thing back through the gate. This is not good. And Jack's like, yes, I agree. And tells Daniel to go run to the gate room to get them to get the gate dialing started so they can just run in, chuck it through and be done with it. And when what what do you think it was that actually woke it up, though? Well, I mean, I I think we learn later what it was if we want to spoil later in the episode. No, don't they just say you woke us? Well, because of the atmosphere on Earth, it has oxygen and nitrogen and all of those things that make an atmosphere that the planet we got it from was lacking. Right. Well, no. Yeah, there's that. But I was like, what specific event just made it go? Nope. Well, I don't I. I don't think it was a specific event. I think it had just maybe finally absorbed enough stuff that it was like, okay, now I'm awake. I'm Mm. here. Okay. Kind of a thing. Like, you know, it kind of needed to absorb so much of stuff before it could fully activate. Right. If you will. So, yeah. So Daniel runs off and the artifact then sort of like splits apart a bit in the middle and it starts to glow more. So apparently this is not a time capsule then, maybe, possibly, still not sure, but uh, Daniel has gotten the gate going and uh, Tilk just so happens to come into the lab at the exact correct time that they need him, because <laughs> I don't know if they called, I don't know how Tilk knew to go there, but he's there and he and Jack are basically going to like just pick the thing up and throw it back through the gates so they don't have time to put the full spacesuits back on to actually like put it back in its proper place. However, apparently this device maybe has some sort of sentience to it because as soon as they start talking about sending it back, it shoots out these like spiky rods that seem to prohibit it from like being picked up and moved. And Jack's like, well, like come from nowhere. Yeah, like the device is not that big and these are very long. There must be some kind of like nanotechnology involved in this thing, I'm guessing, because that's a very alien techni thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, Jack's like, well, you know, too bad. We're sending you through the gate anyway. So we then see Jack and Tilk uh, like holding on to the spikes with like towels or some kind. Because apparently, you know, the temperature is getting very hot on this thing as the gate starts dialing. And we again have the same goof as always, where the address that's being shown as being dialed is the address of Abydos, not the actual address of the planet they're going to. Um, <laughs> and they make it to the gate room. And as the seventh chevron locks, a giant spike shoots out from the bottom of the sphere, driving it into the floor. And other spikes start to shoot out from the sides and like sort of the four axes. And Tilk manages to dodge the one that shoots out towards him. Jack, unfortunately, is not so lucky, and one of them goes, like, right through his shoulder and, like, carries him all the way across the gate room and pins him to the wall, and Hammond immediately calls for security and medical to the gate room. We, we, apparently, we have angered this, this device 
whatever it is. And uh, Jack is also very not happy. He's like yelling for somebody to kill this thing. And so Tilk runs out of the gate room to presumably get a weapon of some kind. The temperature is still rising, but is maybe leveled off a bit. He does a really, really good job of of being in pain and panic. Yes. Yes. And uh, Dr. Frazier is now there and she's confused as to why there's not like blood everywhere considering the injury Jack has sustained. Like there should be blood all like dripping down the wall basically, but there's not, there's like hardly any trauma at all really that she can see. And Tilt comes back like what, 10, 20 feet off the ground. And it's, he's just yeah. hanging by his shoulder wound. Ow. Yeah. Oh, God, it's just I, you know, thinking about it just is just at ah, all. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, no, yeah. So Tilk runs back into the gate room with his staff weapon and suggests that everybody else watch from the control room just in case. And Sam is convinced that like this is a mistake because they have no idea what a staff blast could do to this thing. It's all metal. Some of the staff blasts could be like transferred into Jack. Who knows what's going on? And Hammond's like, your concern is noted. And they Wait. proceed anyway. Stupid. I know. It's like, I, I like I get it, but I don't. But also just like, listen, listen to the scientists, please. <laughs> listen to yeah. the scientists. They know what they're talking about. So Tilk shoots the thing. But as posited by Sam, the energy just gets absorbed. And you see it sort of go up the spike like into Jack. And Jack just, like, keeps yelling for Tilk to kill it. And he tries again, but nothing is happening. And Tilk suggests another weapon. But Sam gets over the intercom and is like, don't do that. They could be giving this thing exactly what it wants for all they know. So Hammond then orders a cutting torch to be brought in to see if they could at least maybe cut Jack down. And Sam's like, well, the spikes are made from the same thing that the shell is made from. It's like several hundred times harder than steel. And Hammond, it's like, well, we got to try something. We can't blow it up. We can, cutting it is sort of the next best option at this point. So there is a little goof on some of the shots of Jack where you can see along the wall, like the white paint that will glow later when they turn on the UV lights. Oh, yeah. See, like, oh, I didn't notice like, that. On the wall. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. It's like, oh, hey, I wonder what's going to happen with that little white line in oh. like 10 minutes. Yeah. So, yes. So we then cut to Hammond's office where he's on the phone with General somebody. And the the NID are apparently now more excited than ever about the device and want to come take a look at it. And Hammond's like, absolutely not. And in fact, this the base is getting put on full lockdown, like nobody in, nobody out, internal power, internal life support until they can get this thing back to P5C353. And yeah. And I, I love that, you know, Sam's like, why do the NID, wait, the NID want this? Even Sam, Sam seems confused about why the NID wants this, given what has happened to Jack. And Daniel's like, they want it because of what it has done to Jack. Like, yeah, Daniel knows what's up with the NID. Sam hasn't quite sort of caught up to that. But I kind of just like that little exchange that, like, Daniel knows what they're up to and does not like it. 
Mm-hmm. So Daniel then apologizes for what happened and, you know, Hammond tells him he has nothing to apologize for. And uh, <laughs> Hammond continues saying, we've brought things back from all over the galaxy. One of them's finally slapped us in the face. <laughs> I heard that, that line I like, and I was like, I was like one of them. Finally? One of them? Finally? Like, really? You think this is the first time this has happened? It's like the entire, <laughs> it's like the entire basis of the entire show is just them being like, what does this do? Let's bring it back home. I know. <laughs> it's going to kill yep. everybody again. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but he then dismisses Sam and Daniel to sort of start going over all of the data that they have to try and figure out what's going on and how to fix this and get Jack out. And then at Hammond's order, the base is locked down into a level four quarantine and wildfire is initiated. I do love the scene of watching like the huge four foot thick concrete door close, which you don't actually know where that door is. But somewhere, somewhere they are closing a quarantine door that is gloriously thick to show you they are serious. Yeah, it is very cool. I do like whenever we get to see uh, all the doors closing and everything and like mm-hmm. all like that exterior shot where like all of the airmen that are like outside like run inside the door as it's closing. And yeah, yeah. I do. It's cool. Yeah. So in the gate room, uh, Jack thankfully is now sitting on a ladder to, you know, get the weight off his shoulder as Siler is trying to cut through the spike with the torch. And Jack's is running a fever now of some kind, so Fraser's giving him antibiotics, and Tilk is not happy with Siler's progress, and Siler's just like, I'm going as fast as I can. So, okay. And Tilk's like, I'll let you get back to it then. Yes, thank you, Tilk. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sam and Daniel are then briefing additional personnel on the situation, and Daniel will be leading the group of translators, while Sam will be with everybody else in the astrophysics lab. The information that they have is on, like, the main base computer, so everybody should have access to it. So, like, don't rule anything out and don't make any assumptions to which one of the airmen immediately says, so it's a weapon, right? Like, that's an assumption. So, no, it's not a weapon. Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. That's the kind of thing that we just told you don't do. Don't do that. That's exactly what we meant. (laughs) I did like that exchange. Yeah. That is an assumption. (laughs) That is a no-no. Do that. You silly, silly bet. Yes. So Fraser then comes into the briefing room and wants to show something to Sam. So they head down to the control room where she has an image of whatever it is that has infected Jack up on one of the computers. She says it's mobile like a bacteria, but small like a virus and slightly radioactive. And the other interesting thing is that this sample was actually taken from Jack's uniform. So this thing is infecting everything, like some sort of flesh-eating bacteria or flesh-eating virus of some kind. Which is interesting so, that he even thought to do that. I know. It's like, did I mean, I guess, you know, you would just sort of swab everything just in case. And it's probably easier to get that kind of sample back than like a blood sample analysis. So, but, you know, I don't know. But mm-hmm. it, yeah, it is interesting. So... Sam, I don't know why Sam said she's something about it being like slightly radioactive makes Sam remember that they were using UV light earlier on some tests and Simmons is there in the control room with them. And he's like, ah, yes. So he calls for UV lights to be brought into the gate room. So they turn 
off the main lights and then turn on the UV and like everything is infected. It's on Jack, it's on his uniform, it's on the walls. And then you hear Simmons go, Cap- uh, Captain, what's happening to me? And you look over and like his hands are covered in it too. So yeah, this thing is just everywhere. So I also, like one of the big plot holes for me for this was as soon as you see it all over Simmons's hands, you would think, well, if like right after that, they, they, you're having the conversation and like, it infects everything. It doesn't matter what it is, you know, right down to it. It also infects concrete. Like it's everywhere in everything. So it would have been all over absolutely everything that Simmons touched. Yeah, like, why was there not, like, a spot on his forehead from when he had an itch or, like, yeah, on the computer keyboard, on his shirt? Yeah, Yeah. and so that would have made it, you know, way faster for it to get into their, like, computer system and everything. Because what you see after that with the lights is that it's all kind of leading towards the computer systems or, like, that's where it's kind of creeping to. But if he was just sitting there like a second ago, yeah. it would have just gone right there. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. There definitely should have been, I think, more touches of it places like on the back of the chair as he grabbed it to pull it out or something. And on the light switch and yeah. that he flipped like, and stuff. Everything that he's been touching all day. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. I agree. There should be more. Yes. Mm-hmm. So back in the briefing room, Sam and Janet are filling Hammond in on what's going on as uh, Dr. Frazier gives him an injection uh, as they're just doing this thing. And then once they're done, he's like, what did you just give me? <laughs> she's like, why did you not ask that before? Like, I know you you probably trust her because she's the doctor and wouldn't, you know, do anything to harm you. But still. <laughs> but anyway, so apparently it's tetracycline, which is just a general like broad spectrum antibiotic to try and help keep the infection at bay. And she's giving it to just everybody on the base. But this thing is spreading everywhere, apparently including the wiring, which means it will eventually get into the computers and the communication. And the other thing is, like, Dr. Frazier's going to need a lot more tetracycline. And Hammond is like that. We can't do that. It's a lockdown, nothing in, nothing out. But Simmons is allergic to tetracycline, and she doesn't have any alternatives that would work as well. So... That's very horrible and unfortunate situation, but he's like, don't make me explain myself again. We are in lockdown. We are mm-hmm. not opening up for anything or anyone. I'm very sorry, but not happening. Yeah. So Janet heads back to the infirmary and I kind of like this because Hammond then sort of asks Sam really for her true, like honest opinion on this and if it can beat this thing. And Sam at first is like, well, you know, Colonel Neal says to never give up, but she's like, but I I don't think we can. Like, she doesn't seem very optimistic about their odds at this point, which mm-hmm. I like that she didn't try to sugarcoat it for him, which I mean, you know, he's her superior officer. I don't think she would, but there may be ways to get that inference across more gently or something, but she's just like, this is not a good situation that we're in like mm-hmm. it's not right and Hammond suggests possibly evacuating personnel through the gate and Sam's like I thought about that too but not a good idea because everybody is infected to some degree and we don't really have the right to go and infect another planet with this thing 
And who even knows what the spear would do if we tried to like dial the gate anyway, given what happened the last time we dialed the gate and it did this. So uh, I guess they're just going to fight it here with what they have on their own. So. So in the gate room, Siler is still cutting away and. I love this scene. This is a very good episode for like Jack and Tilk and all the stuff they're going through. I very agree. Yeah. And like my favorite Tilkism is in the scene where Jack's like, you know, you don't have to be here. I'll be fine. And he just goes, undomesticated equines could not remove me. That's and Jack's my like, favorite it's, too. It's so good. And because it's like, you made a joke. Oh my God, you made a joke. Like it's sort of, he's really becoming a part of this family and this culture and he's really becoming one of them. And it's just, it's very touching. And you can really see the sort of the bond that these two men are starting to build between them, you know, when they yeah. started out as enemies, really. And now they're like almost the best of friends. And it's really great Aww. to see. I yeah. like it a lot. So. I like it too. It's nice. Yes. So Siler has almost cut through the spike like it's he's almost through when the sphere then like powers up if you will and the spike that was almost cut just shoots out even farther through Jack's shoulder who like screams in pain in the most just sort of gut-wrenching scream and like he's like cry he's just he, yeah Richard Dean Anderson is so good at just the I am in so much pain I don't know what to do with myself kind of acting, emoting, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, so apparently the whole trying to cut the spike off thing doesn't doesn't really work. So I wonder yeah. what would have happened if the guy hadn't actually said anything out loud, if he would just like kept going and not tell I, anybody he was almost done. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Does it like hear? Does it feel? Or yeah, does it just hear what's going on? Yeah. It's That's interesting, interesting timing where he's all of a sudden like, I'm almost done. And then it just yeah. shot out like, what if he just didn't say anything? Kept doing his damn job. <laughs> no, like, why didn't it do that when they just first started cutting through it? Yeah. That was some kind of defense thing. Huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we then cut to the lab where Sam and Daniel are looking over a very enlarged copy of the writing, trying to figure out like what it all means. And... They're still on this sort of number exponential growth thing. And Sam's like, yeah, that seems to be like what's happening with this virus. We're seeing it. That's the microphone. We are seeing it grow like an exponential curve. And Daniel's like, that's interesting. Why? Like until like until what happens? Like when we get to the end of this exponential curve, like uh, what then? And Sam's like. Fair question. I mean, very good question. Yes. And Sam's like, maybe you can turn the page. Okay. I'm sure Daniel has thought of that, but who knows? Because the sort of page they're referring to is like the writing is sort of laid out in these sort of bands that go around the sphere. And they're like the one band they're looking at was sort of very separate and had different symbols than like the rest of it. So Daniel's like, this is probably page one, but okay. So which one is page two? Who knows? And like, he has no reference for this writing. It doesn't seem similar to, you know, any ancient kind of writing he's familiar with. So it's like, good idea, Sam, which one's page two? We then cut to the infirmary where Simmons is there looking very, very, very sick. And uh, he starts to tell Dr. Frazier and he goes, you know, if, if you see Captain Carter, tell her. 
And she's like, I'm sure she'll be fine. I'll tell Sam to come over and say hi when she comes in for her booster shot. Yeah. So, yeah. And so then in Sam's lab, she's with the, the guy from earlier that was like, it's a weapon, right? And she's like, nope. And they're looking over a bunch of data that they have. And Sam was right that it is Tilk's staff weapon that just fed it more energy that caused it to spread even further, like to where it is at this point. And so now we get into like the metaphor time. So if this thing is like a fire, then they need to like starve it of oxygen. Okay, well, how can we do that? Because people on the base, you know, we need oxygen. So, I mean, maybe they can't completely put it out, but they might be able to slow it down a little bit. So Sam starts trying to make her way to the gate room, but she kind of gets cut off because it's like in all like the pipes and the wiring. So she ends up having to go around a different way and take the elevator. And then the guess what? The elevator gets stuck because it's in the wiring. And you kind of see this like goo coming out from like behind what? the control panel. What is that like goo even supposed to be? It, like, is it the wires melting or something? Because it looked metallic. I don't know. It was weird. I was like, what is that goo supposed to be? I can, there's no goo in elevators. What no. elevator should take it? I know. So yeah, is it something <laughs> melting and leaking out? I don't know. Um so she starts, you know, banging on the doors to hoping somebody will hear her. Luckily, Daniel happens to be walking by and hears her banging. So he met, gets uh, like one of the fire axes that's in the hall and manages like wrench the doors open to get Sam out. But did did you notice the goof in this scene? No. How is it? I never see any of these goofs. <laughs> so when the elevator stops, the control, like inside the elevator, the control panel displays Sam is being on level 22. Daniel's on level 28. Oh. And when he opens the door and Sam walks out on level 28. So how, yeah, just somebody wasn't paying attention to when is the display thing somewhere. Continuity error. Yes. I also find it very convenient that it happened to stop level with the floor and not like slightly off center as elevators usually do. That's what I did notice that one. Yeah. Which because, you know, that's not a real elevator. It's just an extension of the set on the ground floor of the set with elevator doors in front of it. But yeah, it's like it should have they should have played it up somehow that it was, you know, maybe a little higher, a little low, something they could have maybe built something up. I don't know. But it was just like, how convenient that it's exactly level with where yeah. it needs to be. Yeah. But anyway, uh, they finally make it to the control room, uh, Sam and Daniel, where they see Tilk holding a, a blowtorch to some of the pipes that are in the gate room. And Sam's like, he needs to stop immediately. And Hammond's like, well, it's holding back the organism, so why should we stop? And so she goes into the whole fire thing about how it's only holding back the organism because it's temporarily starving the area of oxygen. So Sam's plan is to adjust the CO2 scrubbers to lower the level of oxygen in the room, but they need to start doing that right now. When suddenly the self-destruct starts up because of some contamination failure or containment containment failure that's what it is a containment failure of the organism apparently when that happens a three hour self-destruct starts up which if if containment has failed why is there a three hour delay (laughs) three hours on self-destruct like i guess maybe give people time to escape but three hours seems like an awful long time for a situation that would need that 
two hours and 59 minutes to figure it out, man. Oh, is that what it is? That is why. Oh, okay. So Sam's like, we need to turn that off right now. And Hammond's like, we can't. This, this is how the protocol works. This is, this the system is doing what it was designed to do and so sam's go sam's like okay you see what it did with just a staff blast if this whole base blows up what do you think is going to happen then and hammond's like oh okay gotcha so they go to try and deactivate it but apparently the organism has infected the computers to the point where it will not recognize their deactivation codes so now we have the three-hour ticking clock in which to solve the problem. Suspense. So we cut to the gate room, and Jack seems to think that, like, this was all his fault. He's the one who authorized bringing this thing back to Earth. And looks like, I agreed that bringing this back to Earth was a necessary risk because he makes the good point of risks are necessary to advance yourselves in the fight against the Gould. This was the correct decision to make. It unfortunately hasn't worked out how we thought it was going to work out. But Tilk seems to believe that Jack did make the correct decision in this scenario. I do not. I do, I do not. I do not think he I made don't, the right decision. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah, I don't. I'm, Throwing I'm the ball just, in the back of a truck and coming back home with it is not the right decision. I, no, I don't think it is. <laughs> Um, but again, but again, just the scene, that little scene between Jack and Tilkey is just, it's so good. They're so good together. Yeah. I like them. So. They, it was so beautiful agreeing with each other in their wrongness. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, so let me cut to Sam then in the infirmary who is getting her booster shot. And Dr. Frazier asks her to go check on Simmons. And he 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 does not look good at all. But of course, you know, Sam does that lying thing. She's like, oh, you're sucked for, you're doing just fine. You look great. They, you look great. You'll, you'll be great. And Have you been working they, out? They seem to be trying to do that thing in the scene where Sam is just trying to do the hood before I die. Let me tell you, I love you kind of deathbed confession thing, which again, you know, is fine if this wasn't the first time we have met this character. Yes, I will. I will agree with that. It would it would have normally been cute and adorable if we hadn't met him five minutes ago. Yeah, I have no idea who this guy is. Just give me a couple episodes with him hanging around and then I'm sure it would be fine. But as of right now, it's just like, why? I don't get it. I think why I like it is because I enjoy that they actually have SG-1, like, interacting with other people on the base. Yeah, and that not, is and good. And not I, just in their own little little click bubble. Yes. I, I do like that it expands that part of the story. But, yeah, the, 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 speci- the specificity of this scenario is a little weird for me. Yeah. <laughs> so... So at the end of this interaction, does he like pass out? Kind of, or maybe just falls asleep because, you know, he's got a very high fever. I'm sure he's very tired. Because in reality, the way they play it, like you have no idea if he goes to sleep or if he like dies. Yeah. It's like, does he die? Yeah. He, he just, just kind of like trails off in the middle of what he's saying. Yeah. And then she just like, kind of leaves the room. And I'm like, did she just yeah. leave the room and he died? Well, I would think if he died, there'd be like, you know, the monitors going off and stuff. So... Yeah, I think we can go with I think we can go with the he didn't die thing. 
But. That's the only thing I have to go on. It's like, I think she, I'm, I'm going to assume she would have been more sad. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. For sure. Yes. Not just been like, okay, I'm going to go now. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So from there, we cut to Daniel's lab, and he just looks exhausted. He's doing that, like, blinky thing people do when they get really, really tired and are trying to look at writing and things that they really shouldn't be looking at anymore. And he's just kind of staring at some papers when he sort of notices the computer screen next to him flicker a little bit. And there's something weird. Like, it doesn't just flicker. Like, there's something on it. And no one else seems to notice, and he's just like, hey, come here. And the other dude in the room is like, who he's like I, whoever you come here like I like that, just I like for that line. it's like I don't, I care. don't know you you come here whoever you are and the weird like flickering thing happens again and it looks like one of the symbols from that sphere is sort of like embossing itself over whatever is being like displayed on the screen and Daniel's like it's trying to communicate with us because you know that's always what Daniel thinks so yeah. that's he goes a bit to of tell a lead, but okay yeah, so I'm guessing at that point he goes to tell Sam, and then the two of them go to talk with Hammond, and that now they want to do the complete opposite of what Sam told them like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Before, she was like, we need to starve into oxygen. She's like, now we need to feed it with oxygen. And Hammond is rightfully very confused about this sudden like switch in their thinking. Because he's like, but you just said we needed to do the other thing why do we need to do this thing and daniel's like we never even considered that this might be some kind of alien intelligence we always just treated it like a bacteria or a virus this might be alive so apparently they managed to convince hammond so he agrees and they like switch tactics and start like pumping oxygen into the room if I was Hammond, I would have just thought they were all crazy pants. If this thing that all the medical staff says, hey, it's like a viral bacteria. It's just getting into everything. It's permeated everything. And all of a sudden, some of your staff is just like, what if it's alive? What if it's trying to communicate with us? What if it's trying to talk to us through Jack? And it was this plan the whole time. I would have been like, y'all are crazy. No. But also it's alien, so eh? So maybe? <laughs> maybe? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the the only problem with this plan to like feed it oxygen and get it to grow more and try and communicate with it through the computers is Daniel's like, I can't translate it. I don't know what it's saying. Which Daniel's like, I have I I just love that Daniel's like, I don't know what it says. I don't know how this alphabet or this language works. And then this is where then Sam is like, maybe you don't have to. Maybe they infected Jack on purpose. And Daniel's just like, are you sure? There, there, I like that there was a bit of skepticism there. That's just like, I, really? I don't, really? But then, you know, Sam does bring up the point of like, there's no blood. There's no trauma. Like, aside from the infection, Jack is totally fine. Like, Jack should be in a lot worse shape than he's in. So... They head down there, and the only last sort of remaining piece of this puzzle is they need to cut off Jack's medication, like the IV of antibiotics that are flooding his system. So 
I mean, this, this might be the only way. This might be their last chance because apparently the three-hour countdown is, you know, it's still chugging along. So they're going to give it a try. So Sam removes Jack's IV sort of seemingly with his okay because she, like, kind of grabbed his hand and was like, we need to do this, sir. And she, he did, like, squeeze it back because he's Jack is very out of it at this point. Um, so they all step back and then Tilk fires his staff weapon at the device several times. Um, nothing really happens. And Sam goes to check on Jack and Jack now has no pulse. So Jack is dead. They Whoop. have killed Jack. Uh, whoops. But then finally Jack lifts his head and says in a voice that's like not quite his, he goes, good morning campers. So apparently their plan has worked. And now both Jack and the alien entity are there because this alien entity seems to know and feel everything that Jack knows and feels, which is really interesting because oftentimes in these scenarios where you have a sort of possession situation, it's like, it's just the alien thing um, who maybe can maybe kind of have a little bit of like, you know, sort of the host body, but it really seems there's a sort of symbiosis going on here that is maybe a, a little atypical for most scenarios where this kind of thing usually happens, which I thought was interesting. So do you think that that's actually how the organism actually like thrived on the other planet that's now like the moon planet? Because if it no was, because if it was just like a bacteria, like it is, it wouldn't have been able to build things or even build that device and write stuff on it yeah so i'm wondering my other thought this might be completely batshit insane but my my other thought about this has always been they were a human or humanoid species that managed to put their intelligence into the bacteria oh I don't know why I have always thought that, but it's sort of like you, they like bacteria can't do this. So, and there, there is some speculation that the bacteria is not the alien entity. The bacteria is just the, the transportation for the alien entity. And it's, you know, again, maybe like some sort of nanotechnology thing, but yeah, I don't, know if there's ever been a really good answer to what these this species was before their planet failed mm. but yeah i would i would agree that they are not bacteria inherently okay that mouse is going out yeah so we get the story from this alien entity entity about what happened and that millennia ago their world was dying so they built the orb as they call it and waited for someone to bring it back to a planet that could support life which we did uh but apparently it's sort of at the cost of our own lives at this point because it does not seem possible for us to coexist with this entity you know they want to go forth and multiply which again is a little like Okay, so what is the entity? Like, how did they do the thing? If this is where they are now, will they eventually evolve? Because, you know, we come from bacteria. So will they, you know, go forth and multiply and eventually become humanoid again as I knock my microphone all over the place? Um, 
Yeah, it's yeah. Again, we get some stuff in here that's like, okay, so but what are you and what were okay, you? But, really? but what in the who now and the what? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, so Hammond's like, we can't let you stay here because you will kill us, and we don't want that. And then Daniel's like, wait, P4G881. Do you remember that from the very beginning of the episode? That primordial world that SG1 was supposed to go on that mission to, where there were like. No people, like no animals, but like lots of oxygen and lots of sunlight because it's like Earth was like billions of years ago. This is like this. This is what you want, right? Yeah, that's convenient. Oh, convenient. Wow. And the the entity is like, and you'll send us there. And it's like, yes, we will send you there. So suddenly Jack goes quiet and like the power shuts down in the control room. Uh, what's going on? We now have two minutes to self-destruct and the computers are down, but wait, they're booting back up. And so Hammond is like, start dialing P4G881 as soon as everything is back up. And these have to be like the fastest booting computers in 1998 that I've ever seen. (laughs) So, however, the self-destruct countdown is continuing as the gate dials and suddenly... so great if they had had like the old school AOL like dial-up sound effect on there somewhere. (laughs) Um, that would have been amazing. It would have been good. Um, and then suddenly all like the spikes come out of the wall and out of Jack, who then walks down the ladder towards the sphere. He holds it and sort of all the glowy blue stuff leaves Jack and goes back into the sphere along with the other spikes. And then the gate connects. And so Jack walks up the ramp and just sort of gently sends the orb through the gate as uh, Jack then just like falls backwards, like straight back onto the ramp as then the gate shuts down and Sam and Hammond managed to stop the self-destruct with one second left, of course. So Carter then runs into the gate room where Tilk and Daniel are helping uh, a seemingly perfectly fine Jack sit up. So are we to assume that like all of the bacteria just like back into it? Yes. That's the remaining From all question. Over everywhere? Like, yeah, that's what happened to the bacteria in the rest of the base? Like, is Simmons fine in the infirmary? Did it somehow like go through the walls back into the thing? Yeah, that's and, sort like of the, out of the computer the, systems the, and out of the containment that started the the yeah. countdown in the first place. Yeah. What yeah. what happened? With the rest of the bacteria that was not just in the gate room. I am but very no. confused. Jack is alive, so everything's fine. The end. Yes. That's so, and I'm, I'm just, I'm really hoping though that they took Jack like directly to the infirmary from there because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but then yeah, that's that's the end, and everything is now fine, apparently. Yay. Um, any additional memos other than our usual quarantine your shit. Quarantine your shit and um, stockpile enough medicine to give everybody on base. Yeah. And if you know somebody's allergic to something, get a replacement there immediately. Yeah. I don't. I don't know why she wouldn't have enough. Well, I mean, maybe she didn't anticipate having to inject everybody on base like every four hours or something with, you know, however many milligrams of tetracycline they needed because there's a lot of people on that base and there's a lot of tetracycline yeah but at the same time there's a lot of aliens 
That's true. That's very true. So not aliens. Not I mean I any any military base that has a level four four <laughs> inch thick quarantine protocol where they shut that door and nothing's getting through. You'd think they have some sort of stockpile of yes. both medicine and food. Yes, I would agree. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just saying. Okay. Just so. I have a, a, a general fun fact for sort of this episode as a whole. <gasps> fun facts. Uh, I love fun facts. Apparently, uh, this episode has a lot in common with the Andromeda Strain. If you've oh. ever read that book or seen the movie. Neither um, one. Heard of it, though. Okay. So some high points include there is a highly infectious alien organism that's taking over an underground facility. Mm-hmm. The organism feeds on energy. Mm-hmm. There is some kind of lockdown or failsafe protocol called wildfire. Ah. And there's also an autodestruct that would just feed the organism and allow it to spread across the world rather than killing it. Oh, yeah. All right. so, cool. There well, you go. I don't, to, I don't have to watch Andromeda Strain now, do I? Yeah. Apparently, though, the movie is terrible, but the book is great. So in case you wanted to. That's usually how those things go. <laughs> Yes. There's only um, been one time in my life where I have enjoyed the movie more than the book, and that was because they made a movie on a kid's book. Which one is that? Uh, I really enjoyed Tuck Everlasting. I have neither read nor seen any of those. Mm. Well, since it's a kid's book, right, it's not very descriptive. So when they finally made the movie, they actually made, like, characters that you love. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Although I do like the ending in the book better, but I still okay. like the movie better than the book. Okay. All right. So the title of this episode, Message in a Bottle, I think is fairly self-explanatory, but I decided to just look into just that phrase, like where it comes from. Um, so how do you, how old do you think the oldest like message in a bottle is? Ah, uh, it makes me think of pirates. So I'm, I'm guessing it's people that were, Related to pirates. I don't know. Uh, bottled messages may date as far back as 310 BC. What? That's way before pirates. Uh, yes. Okay. So there's evidence that the Greek philosopher, pardon me as I butcher his name, Theophastus, uh, used messages and bottles to study currents, like the water currents in the ocean. Oh, which... like where they end up? Where'd they end up? Yeah. So... Um, that's actually sort of a lot of the history of that is scientists using it to like study ocean currents. Um, then there is a, a Japanese medieval epic called the tale of the Heike, H-E-I-K-E, Heike, Heike. Have yeah, you pronounced that? I'm not um, the one that goes Japanese in my marriage. No. Um, and it records the story of an exiled poet who in about 1177 A.D., launched uh, wooden planks on which he had inscribed poems describing his plight. Uh, In the 16th century, Queen Elizabeth I reputedly created an official position of uncorker of ocean bottles and (laughs) thinking that some bottles might contain secrets from British spies or fleets decreed that anyone else opening bottles could face the death penalty. Uh, It's it, it's been argued that this might be like a myth and not really true, but there doesn't seem to be concrete evidence one way or the other. 
And in the 19th century, uh, literary works such as Edgar Allan Poe's 1833 MS found in a bottle, which MS stands for manuscript, and Charles Dickens's 1860 A Message from the Sea, uh, inspired an enduring and popular passion for the sending of bottled messages. Uh, it was estimated in 2009 that since the mid-1900s, 6 million bottled messages had been released, including 500,000 from oceanographers. Oh. Uh, Benjamin Franklin did experiments using bottled messages in the mid-1700s that basically indicated the existence and approximate location of the Gulf Stream. Oh. So Franklin was the first guy to do that. Um, some other, like, really cool historical examples, if um, we have time to go through that. Uh, I'll go through them, and if I don't like it, I'll, I'll cut this out. <laughs> you can okay. play commentary if you want. Um, when Christopher Columbus encountered a severe storm while returning from America, he was said to have written on parchment what he found and requested that before to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, and enclosed that parchment in a waxed cloth and placed it in a large wooden barrel that was cast into the sea. However, that communication was never recovered. Oh. Here's the coolest one, because it was a very long time between from when it was sent and when it was found, and how it was found was really cool. So in 1784, Chunosuke Matsuyama sent a message detailing uh, his and his 43 shipmates shipwrecking in a bottle that washed ashore and was found in 1935 well, by, a, by a Japanese seaweed collector in the village that was Matsuyama's birthplace. So he was cool. shipwrecked, sent a message in a bottle, and it landed in his birthplace. Oh, and it went back home. It did. How cool is that? That is super cool. That's really cool. Have you ever thought about putting a message in a bottle? No. 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 Have you? No, but I think if I was on like a cruise, if I ever decided to go on a cruise, I might do it and see just like where it ends up. Okay. Um, let's see. In 1875, uh, Van Hoydeck and his cabin boy, Henry Trusillo of the British sailing ship Lenny, released 24 bottled messages into the Bay of Biscay, telling of the murder by mutineers of their captain and various officers. French authorities actually very soon received the message and they managed to rescue the remaining crew members and brought the mutineers to justice. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. On December 23rd, 1927, Francis Wilson Grayson, who was the niece of the of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, was attempting to be the first woman to make a transatlantic flight. Like, not solo. She had a, a partner with her. Um, however, her plane disappeared en route from New York's Long Island to Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, and was never found. There was then a bottled message found in Salem Harbor, Massachusetts, in January 1929, with a message reading, 1928, we are freezing, gas leaked out, we are, dr we are drifting off Grand Banks, Grayson. Let's see. In 1929, a bottle that came to be known as the Flying Dutchman was released by a German marine science expedition with instruction for any finders to report the find but return the bottle to the sea. So it was found then at several locations in succession, and the Flying Dutchman traveled 16,000 miles 
from its release point in the southern Indian Ocean to Cape Horn in South America, and then back through the Indian Ocean to its last reported find in 1935 on the west coast of Australia. Can that be considered the world's first chain letter? Possibly, yeah. Huh. I know that. Yes. <laughs> I hate uh, chain letters, yes. but that one sounds cool. <laughs> yes. On Christmas Day 1945, 21-year-old medical corpsman Frank Hayostek threw a message-laden aspirin bottle from his Liberty ship as it approached New York, and the bottle was found eight months later near Dingle in County Kerry in Ireland by milkmaid Brita O'Sullivan. Her mailed reply began a correspondence between them that inspired Hayostek to save money for airfare to visit her in 1952. Intense media attention for the impossibly romantic story, including a Time magazine story, completely overshadowed their two-week visit with the two soon parting but uh, corresponding until they married other people in 1958 and 1959. And, like, the media attention continued throughout their, like, through their lives until, like, after their death, even. Really? Even after they married other people? Yeah. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. At no point were they like, dude, you guys, come on. We didn't know. I'm I'm sure they tried, but, you know. Who knows? Yeah. Um, In 1955, a bottle from a 1903 German Antarctic expedition was found in New Zealand, about 3,400 miles from its launch point between the, the Kerguelen Islands and Tasmania. However, hydrographers surmise it had actually drifted around the world many times before it finally got found. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yes. Uh, And then finally, in what was described as perhaps the most famous message in a bottle love story, in March 1999, a green ginger beer bottle was dredged up by a fisherman off the Essex coast. The bottle contained an 84-year-old letter tossed into the English Channel on September 9, 1914, by British soldier Private Thomas Hughes, days before he was killed fighting in France. Hughes' letter, written for delivery to his wife, who had passed in 1979, was instead delivered to his then 86-year-old daughter in New Zealand by the fisherman who found it, who, with his own wife, was flown to New Zealand at the expense of the New Zealand Post. Aww. Yeah, I thought that was sweet. That's sweet. Uh, and then my final message in a bottle fact is that apparently cur- currently on stage in London is a musical called Message in a Bottle. Not a musical. It's like it's a it's a dance show, not like a ballet, but it's a dance show called Message in a Bottle based on the music of Sting and the Police. Oh. It actually looks really it actually looks really cool. Um it's sort of it no, it really does. It's sort of about um like the refugee experience, actually. Um there's some trailers like on YouTube you can find if you just like Google uh like London message in a bottle. You can mm-hmm. see stuff that it just yeah, it looks really interesting. It's actually on stage now. So if you are listening to this in September 2021 and you live in London. Maybe go check it out. It sounds pretty cool. It's on at the Peacock Theater in London. So And let us not forget the Nicholas Sparks message in a bottle, which what Kevin Costner was in the movie, which uh-huh. I never saw uh, or read. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean never I saw, it. never read, but no. if you are a Nicholas Sparks fan, I'm sure it was epic. 
So that's all for me. A message in a bottle. Any final thoughts, Rachel? Message in a bottle. Also one of my favorite songs to play on Guitar Hero. I've never played Guitar Hero. What? I don't I don't have Guitar Hero. I'm sorry. It we is don't really do fun. Okay. Oh, surely you must someday. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> oh, you will play it next time we are together. Okay. okay. All right. Whenever it's our destiny, Guitar yeah. Hero will be in there and we'll put message in a bottle and then you will say <laughs> yes. I agree with you. Okay. This is surely the most fun song to play. All right. Sounds good. So to it me. is written. So so it shall be. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. You can find us on Twitter at SG underscore rewatch or email us at woo SG rewatch. That's W O O S G rewatch at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review us, please. And we will see you next time for family. Bye. Bye.